Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month we pop to Hampshire to discuss wood chip for fertile soils. We get tips on rearing pigs on pasture and we visit a regenerative vineyard system in Oregon. But first, while I was in Chile on my family's farm earlier this year, I took some time out to visit Josefina on her ranch. My name is Josefina Correa and we have 400 acres. 400? I met Josefina on her farm in the Malay Valley, Chile. It's a really beautiful location. You're sitting just below the snow-capped Andes Mountains. There's extinct volcanoes up above, and then it rolls down into native forests on the hillsides. And Josefina's land is a ranch, so she has many cattle, and she rides around on her horse, herding the cattle daily. She told me about how she came to run the farm. I'm, I'm an art teacher, and I work in, for 40 years art teacher. I love to be a teacher. So when I finished my classes of art, the, the, the end of the week, I came here. I cried a lot. It was very difficult. <laughs> Alone, it was very difficult. My husband didn't like it. Do what you want. <sighs> but it, it, it was a good idea. Now I evaluate. It was a good idea to take care of this. <laughs> Wow, so you were teaching art in the week, and then you came here on the weekends on your own and and built the farm. Yes, my husband made classes in the university and made classes in a place. He was intellect, intellectual. He didn't like the farm. So he got a job in the Talca University, and I said, well, I'm going to try. I'm trying for 25 years, more or less. Josefina told me that it was thinking ahead to retirement that convinced her to fully take on the farm. She did not want to spend her retirement in Santiago, and though it was hard to begin with, now, at 76 years old, she says working on the farm keeps her young. But all along, she didn't want to do the work alone. Seeking support and community, she put a notice in the local veterinarian shop, a call out to other women, and that was the beginning of a group for women farmers. So I went to the veterinary shop and put a, pa a little paper. Are you lady? You work your farm? Call to this to this number. And now we are 30. We make some meeting once a month and we change experience. We sometimes we we change we change products. Sometimes we change um, friendships. It's no cierto. It's more or less like that. So the women who own the farms, what what kind are they? All cattle farms? No, no, no. We the, we have a lot more or less some five cattle farm. That's fruit, uh, plum, plum, uh, dry plum. They I have um, a lot of, they have ginda, uh, how do you say cereza? Cherries. Cherries. And I have um, a lot of things. Queso, cheese, uh, fresh cheese. Berry, berry, a lot of berry. They have, um, they have um, lecheria, how do you say, milk? Mm -hmm. The group has become more than just about farming. The women are friends and support one another in other areas of their lives too. We meet, we, we help. I'm just widow, so everybody come to, to sleep with me and taking care. It's very nice because you have a lot of people, friends, that help you. 
that one. Yeah, man. Very diverse, the group, because she's from Santiago, people are from some very local people. It's, it's very nice because you can help each other that way, which is much more efficient. And in terms of like the future of female farmers in Chile, is it? Do you think there's more women farmers? Is there potential? Yes, we have a lot of new uh, farmers that arrive here. A lot of young people, ladies, are taking care of the farm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new thing. Josefina has plans for the farm to become an ecological center. They already have children coming for summer schools, and she plans to grow food that's well adapted to harsher climates. The farm is definitely an important part of her family's future. I divide the farm to all the children and with um, a rifa. <laughs> Uh, this place for one, yes, this place of one and another, and so they know. And my everybody is coming to live here. My son, is, I have two living here. Next year is going to come to live here. Another one, and they are going to be living here because in Santiago it's very difficult to live mm -hmm. and very expensive. And we are going to have a hill also, a, a beautiful hill with a very. A top ton of trees, mm. very beautiful place. So Rebecca make makimaki and take the children to the he, to the school, summer school. Bring the children here to the hills and they go. No, it's very beautiful. You lost all your time, but not lost. You gain all your time. <laughs> Before we parted, I asked Josefina for any advice she has for other farmers around the world. If you do the things well. Constant, how do you say? Constant. Constant. You can, every lady can, can do anything. That's the thing. Claro, because you must be there, you must study, you must have contact with people the same that do the same job, because you can change experience. You must work with the people, not against the people. That's a good idea. Everybody loves you, you, you work with them. Down Farm in Hampshire is a 300-acre conventional arable farm and home to the Hampshire Woodfuel Cooperative, run by William Hamer. Farm and co-op are working closely together. Farmer Robert Benford diversified his arable operation to take in green waste from the council and wood from the cooperative, from which he produces wood chip and logs, and compost which he spreads on the farm to improve the soil. The farm is part of the EU project Woodchip for Fertile Soils, which is run by Sally Westaway with the Organic Research Centre. Ben Raskin here talks to Robert, William and Sally all about the project. It's a little bit difficult to hear in places, but we wanted to share this with you anyway as there are some really useful insights, so do listen closely. We're looking at different application rates, we're looking at different systems. We've got three farms involved um, with trials on the farms. We're looking at sourcing the chip from on-farm, so from hedgerows, from agroforestry, short rotation coppice, um, and anywhere, anywhere else you can get it on the farm, basically, um, from trees on the farm. And we're looking then at the effect that it has on the soil, but also the economics of collecting it, presumably growing it or collecting it. Yeah, so it's um, looking at soil health and improvements in soil health, um, but we're also hoping, assuming we get some positive results, to come up with some practical guidelines for other people who might want to do similar um, stuff on their farm. Yeah. And so we're here at Robert's farm, and as well as being a farmer, Robert's also got a green waste and timber yeah. company going on. 
which I'm guessing is why you've been chosen to be part of the project. Yes, because um, I came through William, really, who was a sort of link man between us. Um, but yes, I mean, we, we, we've got the wood chip, we've got the wood coming in, we've got the machines, we've got the, you know, we had the resource, so it wasn't difficult to uh, just switch into doing whatever was needed for the project. And your particular interest is on using the wood or the effect it has on the soil? What's the, what's the draw for you? I, I, me, I think there wasn't really one. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a further outlet for wood chip. Yeah. Uh, you know, if this goes absolutely crazy and everybody decides they want to put wood chip on their land, we're going to be selling a lot more wood chip. Yeah. Uh, you know, so to my, I wasn't driven by any sort of ethical considerations. It was literally a, a proposition. Uh, you know, would you like to do this? And yeah, why not? You know, it's sort of interesting. But equally, you were talking earlier as we were going around the farm about. You know, you've been putting green waste compost on your land for a number oh, of years yeah. and seeing yes. the benefit. Oh of yes, that. yes, yes. So no, no. So we're to that extent we're sort of yeah in, in the train. Yeah. Um, but but I mean obviously you can see the amount of compost we're getting through is it dwarfs. Yeah. Probably um, any any likely application of wood chip. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not that difficult, but you'd have to sort of set out to do it. Um, you know, so um, you know, I just ring up Sam, who's got the tree shear, and he comes out and does a shit the shearing. Well, I think now there are lots of tree shears out there, so that's not difficult. So anyone could do and that. And then uh, the chipper. Well, a lot of um, our own customers here have got uh, little Timberwolf chippers, and you don't need a huge industrial chipper to produce um, uh, chip from you know the Ramiel chip because it's small diameter by definition. Yeah. You know, it, it's not that you couldn't do it, but you sort of think, now, do I know anybody with a chipper? You, do you know what I mean? And uh, have I got the right kind of muck spreader? And, and you know, it, it's it's that kind of inertia, I guess, for for, yeah. for a man who hasn't considered it before. Um, he'd have to figure out where he was going to get a. I mean, you could hire them. Yeah, but it's always making it a bit easier for him to make those decisions. Just exactly yeah. that. Yeah. And I mean, I think the the cost of spreading that wood chip was sort of. 40 quid or something, Minimal, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> because you know, it had that enormous FGS spreader yeah. in the field anyway, and it's just, oh, you know, chuck a bucket in there and off we go. Yeah. Um, well, bring it on, see what happens. Yeah. But if you have to manage your hedges and you're, you're coppicing your hedges, you've got to do something with the material that comes off them. So if you've got a grant, you've got your hedges in a state where they need that rejuvenation work, so they need that coppicing. Yeah. Um, so then you get a grant from the government subsidy to coppice them you've got to do something with the material so yeah. either push it all up and burn it which is what one of the contractors that we know in Suffolk who um, coppices oh, yeah. hedges yeah. used to do I mean that would be the standard yeah. I'm sure yeah. my neighbour you know two farms over did just that you know, pushed it up and burnt it yeah. um, but of course it's it's not much money I think so it probably wouldn't have been worth sort of saying I can take that because by the time you've gone and got it yeah. and and done everything so I think there's a sort of a bit of a hearts and minds you'd have to want to do it I think yeah um, but if you you know I mean a bit of proper data yeah. justifying the benefits uh, and you know I think farmers in general do care yeah. about their soil and we're seeing I think um, a new uh, younger generation of farmer coming forward who's much more interested in the, the scientific aspects of it. You know, some of them are not. Some of them are just sort of same old, same old. But 
um, some of the youngsters coming forward are, are really inquisitive um, and you know uh, I would say they're susceptible yeah. yeah we've had quite a lot of interest in the project definitely yeah so, uh, William you're the sort of forestry side yeah, yeah. I, I've come in on the forestry side but also as a running of the Woodfield Cooperative meant that I had the wood chip um, angle up my sleeve and Sally brought me in ready to look at the hedgerow management plans and that takes an overall view of the farm holding as a whole and what woody resources there are and that gave, gives you an idea of what productive potential there is yeah. and hopefully this trial will bring out the costs and the benefits of um, using the wood chip either on the soil or otherwise into the fuel chain um, and the cost savings in the management of the hedgerows which can be balanced against it. So it's Because you've be got to do something with the hedges anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. going to be a very interesting at the end of the project as to how these economics work out and whether the soil health benefits um, tip the balance one way or another. It's, it's going to be very interesting. But on a conventional arable farm such as Roberts, I think the risks are relatively yeah. small. Mm. It'll be interesting to see the results, the soil results tracked over the, the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, certainly with the yield mapping on the barley last year, you couldn't make out the plots, you couldn't see any difference. So we're, so we're at the end of March 2019 at the moment. Yeah. The first year of trials was last year? First year of trials was last year, so first year of data, and then second year of trials has just been set up this winter. Yeah. So we'll get three years of data off, off the first year of trial, two years of data off the second year of trial. We put it all together, come up with a good picture, hopefully. Yeah. Fred Price of Gothony Farm in Somerset was on the show back in January, telling us about his journey from a chemical arable operation to something much more regenerative. We wanted to hear a bit more about a key part of his system, the pastured pigs. Most people associate pigs with mud and lots of rooting around, but Fred has found that by using herbal lays and moving the pigs on, they can also be very happy on pasture. His aim on his farm is to build soil health, and the pigs are a brilliant way to do that, whilst ensuring the farm is financially and ecologically resilient. How I started, well my grandfather was an industrial pig farmer, I guess you'd call it, so uh, all indoors um, and uh, kind of intensive, intensively reared and the breeding was different as well. Mm. Now we rear Tamworth which is a rare breed which gives us the slow growing characteristics that we need um, and we're all the breeding and rearing is outdoors um, on herbal lays, cover crops over the winter and uh, kind of taking mob grazing beef systems as our ultimate inspiration for how we want to, where we want to get to, of how dynamic we want to be moving the pigs. And then we kind of, the finishing element of the pig system is based around a roundhouse, so it's straw based at the moment. We want to get to a point where, again, it's about managing it. So it's a weatherproof building when, when we need it to be, but then we can tap into outside areas and forages as and when it's appropriate. So delivering like smaller quantities of really high quality um, life and diet. Uh, 
but even even um, even when they're in the roundhouse on the straw, we want to be delivering them a forage-based diet. So that's if you were to summarise the system as a whole, it's forage-based, or at least I think as much forage-based as I believe I can push a pig at this point in time, with what we know. Can you tell me how you started to realise, or like what pastured pork or pastured pigs means and is, and how you started to realise that was possible? I guess a lot of people would say, oh well we put pigs outside on grass and they just root it all up. Um, I guess I was interested in diversity of cropping and so I was looking at herbal lays from a kind of arable farmer's perspective in what I uh, wanted to do above ground reflected the diversity of life below ground. So we were looking at herbal lays, diverse species cover crops um, and the way that the pigs graze, particularly if you manage them properly, but A, just what species you put in front of them and at what time of year you're putting it in front of them, um, they will behave, they will graze. You know, they, if you just leave them in one area all year, they'll graze first and then they'll start rooting out. But if you can move them and be more dynamic with how you operate, um, then yeah, they will graze. Can you tell me a little bit about exactly how your system works currently? So we have um, three groups of eight sows um, and uh, they are on a six month cycle. So we wean at two months old then there's a four month gestation then they go back to pigs straight away. And they're all two months apart. So basically every two months we're weaning about 60, a batch of 60 weaners. And then uh, from two months to six months the weaners will stay outside and then between six months old and ten months old they'll come into the roundhouse and the weaners will be fed on a TMR diet. Um, so we grow a lot of lucerne silage on the farm and that forms about 55-60% of the TMR, which is, stands for total mixed ration. And then 30% rolled barley, which we grow on the farm, uh, and 15% beans. And then there's a, a small mineral supplement. But that's effectively, that mineral supplement is the only thing we buy in on, on the farm. So the pigs is a nice, totally closed system, really. So. And what about some of them spend some time in forests? Yeah, well, we've got what I would have perceived dead areas before 10 years ago. And now um, they can be super high welfare um, areas for the pigs to use, particularly in the summer when um, grass growth is slower. Um, so you've got more of the undergrowth and also the shading of all the trees for the pigs. So we use them as, as sporadically as we can because I feel if you can use a, a small area of woodland for two months of the year and then let it regenerate for 10 you're getting a lot more out of your two months than you would if you used it for six months of the year but you know practicality dictates we generally use it for longer than two months but ultimately we want to get to the point where we can just drop in and drop out much more sparingly. I think it's too easy to come to the farm and say oh look Fred's doing rare breed pigs isn't this you know nice premium product and all that. The the only reason we have pigs here on the farm and the reason our pig system looks like it does is to some extent to produce a quality pork product um, but it's also to pay for the more progressive aspects of our um, farming system things like perennial crops mixed species lays um, cover crops over winter I can now walk out onto those more progressive aspects to our system and be very happy that they're generating a four to five hundred pound a hectare profit in the same way that five or six years ago I would have had to go go out into a tabletop wheat crop of high input 
um, you know, milling wheat uh, to find that kind of profit. So now we have a really regenerative system where the truly regenerative parts of it are actually the most profitable. And that's because of the pigs. And I think that's the kind of elephant in the room with regenerative farming is we all know the compelling biological case for pumping carbon in your soils and getting the biological system functioning for you. But if you don't make adjustments in how you run your business, it's very difficult to achieve that in a, in a way that's sustainable both ecologically but also financially. Um, and also, so, so for me, the pigs really offer, offer that opportunity to um, set my farm gate price, know my yield, and also know my input costs and decide how I want to grow those inputs. And we grow them with low inputs, so we don't use fungicides, we don't use um, insecticides, and we don't use nitrogen. Um, and we accept lower yields, but we accept also that it's part of a really progressive soil building system. Now, how do I pay for those low input cereals? Well, I feed them to my pigs and I set my pig price. And it all informs this wider story. But that sort of like shift going from volume to value and from profit maximization to kind of resilience of business is, is humongous. And that's really what the pigs offer the business. So it frustrates me if people come to the farm and say, oh, Fred grows pigs. Actually, it's the context. The pigs really are reverse engineered because of what we want to do with the soil. A few episodes ago, we heard from Dan Rinke and Kim Hamlin who told us about their farming experiments at Art and Science in Oregon. Well, Dan also manages Johan Vineyards in the Willamette Valley. He's been there since 2007 and built up a system that goes far beyond just organic or biodynamic. He's developed a regenerative vineyard management system. We asked him to talk us through the different parts of his system. And here's a quick FYI. He talks about barrel compost quite a bit which is something those in the biodynamic community may already know about. Um, it's described as the medium where biodynamic preps meet biodynamic compost. And from what I can tell, it's basically compost with tiny amounts of other ingredients such as basalt and eggshells added in. Um, so we'll, we'll start with fall. Um, just prior to harvest in the vineyard, uh, we'll seed some cover crop. Um, if it needs to. Um, we try to do uh, minimal till or no-till farming situation. So we don't want to till our soils because we don't want to break up the microbiological um, ecosystem within the soil, uh, especially the, the hyphae. Every time you, you till, you break up the hyphae and you're basically killing your hyphal network. Uh, also, at the same time, when you, when you till your soils, you will um, burn up your organic matter and take away the food. The food quickly goes away for the microorganisms. When you're building long-lasting uh, humus, you want a nice, slow, even uh, burn of the organic matter or con conversion of organic matter, not the fast, rapid conversion. Um, so we're no-till and we like I want to have a 
extremely diverse cropping system, uh, cover crop that has multiple species, um, you know, as many species as possible from uh, uh, a good, good percentage, 30 to 40% grasses, uh, 20 to 30% legumes, and the rest being uh, broad leaves, assorted broad leaves, and um, flowering plants. Um, and, and we would plant those uh, hopefully with a no-till seed drill if you could afford one. There's some real um, creative ways you could go about finding out how to, to get uh, perennial, crop, perennial seeds to grow in an already seeded soil. Um, one of them is, is through Fukuoko, making uh, Fukuoko uh, seed balls, or also known as seed bombs. Uh, basically, you take clay, a little bit of clay, a little bit of water. I prefer to add some mycorrhizae to that because I think this is a great way to get mycorrhizae into a perennial system without, uh, especially if you didn't have the ability to plant um, inoculate your trees with mycorrhizae prior to planting. This is a great way to get mycorrhizae in the system. And you mix those all together with a little bit of water and uh, create little seed balls. So we plant our cover crop, our perennial cover crops, right before harvest because in Oregon it, it, it becomes very rainy or could potentially become very rainy uh, anytime from uh, last week of September and the rain could start at that point and go all the way until May of the next year. In winters, um, I apply um, several different uh, compost teas. I find that here in Oregon, in our climate, we're, we don't get extremely cold. Our temperatures are, are usually around um, 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And so I, we, I find that our soils are the most active during that time period when we have wet, moist soils. Um, and so I think this is a great time to add biostimulants and then also bi biological inoculants. And I choose my biological inoculants through the biodynamic methods. Um, so I'll, I'll spray out um, 500, preparation 500. Um, and then also barrel compost. And I also put out an application or several applications of hydrolyzed fish, which is uh, different than a fish emulsion. Uh, hydrolyzed fish is cold processed fish that includes uh, collagen, omega-3 uh, fatty acids. Um, the fish, uh, hydrolyzed fish that I get also is in includes crab and shrimp shells which have um, chitin in it. Chitin is the primary um, the primary component of hyphal cell, cell walls and fungal cell walls. Uh, and this is basically a fungus food and I just I spray it out there to help the the hyphal network build in our soils. So next to coming into spring um, I think one of the, the main things that we do is um, we have our prunings left over from our winter pruning of the vineyard. At that point in time, then we'll, um, we'll run a tractor through with a mower, a flail mower, and uh, chip them up. Uh, so they're chipped up in place and left in the ground. So that then become, also becomes food for the microbial community.
Um, I also then make another um, biodynamic preparation pass of the barrel compost. Uh, I think the barrel compost really helps break that down. Um, And then also in combination with the the fish, the hydrolyzed fish that we already put down, um, creates a real diverse microbial and strong microbial and fungal community that will then break those uh, prunings down and make it available to the whole system. Uh, another thing that we do in spring too is um, we prune the trees around around the periphery of the vineyard and get those for hardwood cuttings and we um, chip those and I put those wood chips then into the compost pile again to feed the fungal communities, especially the saprophytic fungi. And in summer, um, I would say that one of our, our more ecological farming practices would include applying compost and that that is actually a um, I, I guess could be a fall, but that's a post-harvest application of compost. Last month, we responded to one listener's question, explaining a bit about the nuances of no-till and conservation agriculture. Well, this month another listener responded to that explanation, reminding us of a pressing issue in the UK which we didn't mention with regards to glyphosate use. There are a number of farmers in the UK who not only use glyphosate to burn off a cover crop in a conservation ag system, but they also use it just before harvesting their crops. In fact, we read online that almost 80% of oilseed rape in the UK is sprayed with glyphosate, or an alternative herbicide, just before harvest. Uh, This practice is known as pre-harvest crop desiccation, and I'm not 100% clear on exactly why farmers do it, um, but from what I understand, it helps to ensure a more uniform crop, particularly in wetter climates, and also um, many people or it's often said that it's done in order to dry the crop out because it essentially kills the crop. But talking to a few different experts, there's also a lot of evidence out there now that shows that it doesn't actually help to do that at all. Um, And that drying a crop that's been sprayed with glyphosate is actually more difficult in the end. But anyway, jury's out on that. Many people feel uneasy about this use of glyphosate as it's applied just before harvesting the crop, and therefore is much more likely to end up in our food system. I do understand why farmers do this, especially those in wetter climates, as it helps to ensure the consistency of their crop. However, I definitely feel very uneasy about this use of herbicides. But I'm always open to hearing more, so if you are a farmer who uses a herbicide in this way, maybe you could get in touch and let us know why you do it and what you think about it. Um, Or, on the contrary, if you really don't agree with it, let us know as well. Thanks for listening to Farmerama this month and every month. Farmerama is made by Abby Rose, Katie Revel and myself, Joe Barrett. This month we've had editing from Susie McCarthy, Louis Hudson and Zach Epi. Community support for the show comes from Hannah Soderlund, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham, and our theme music 
is by Owen Barrett. <laughs>